0: And Lord, we, um, we devote ourselves and our time again to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, let me tell you a story. Um, my dad said, this was a great saying, John. My dad used to say that before he was married, he had money in his pocket, his suitcase was packed, and he was good to go on a moment's notice, and that when he got married, all that changed. Peggy, I don't know. But I can uh, attest to that too. When I was uh, footloose, single, a long time ago, I lived, yeah, and miserable. Miserable. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I lived in uh, northwest Montana for a couple of years. Had a great time. Got to do some of the things I'd always wanted to do. Hunt and fish and hang out in God's country, big sky country. It was a great two years. But life only got bigger and better as time went on. But anyway, There was a fall, Uh, one of the two falls I spent there was just, it was like this spring has been. It was perfect weather. It was gorgeous. And if you've been into uh, really Wyoming and further north, there are what are called larch or tamarack trees. They're a needle tree, they're a conifer, but they shed their needles every fall. They turn yellow and golden just like aspen do and shed their needles. So this was a perfect fall. And I got to go up three weekends in a row to this high mountain basin, 10 lakes it's called, and we would fish for cutthroat trout three weekends in a row. Just gorgeous, the trees had all turn. On the last of those three weekends, my friend Rick and I were completing the weekend. It was Sunday afternoon. It was time for us to hike out. So if you can imagine, um, we're in a basin here, and then we're, we're surrounded by ridges. There's a ridge running this way and then perpendicular to it. So we've got to come up one ridge, down a basin into another, and there's a long ridge running perpendicular to that. So we've packed up, we're coming across, we come up to this ridge, and you feel like you're on top of the world. You can see east into Glacier National Park and west to the horizon, mountains everywhere, and you feel like it's you, God, and the mountains up there. So Rick is feeling a bit full of himself, and he yells as loud as he can up there, you know, hear the echo, and here we are sort of thing, and uh, we're, we're getting ready to go down the ridge, and... And uh, to our chagrin and surprise, somebody yells back. We thought we were alone, we weren't. Somebody yells back. And we could barely hear this yell. I mean, it was faint, but it was discernible. So we start looking for who else is up here. And I get my binoculars out, and I can see if we're on a tee, we're on the tail or the leg of the T, up on this other ridge, we can see two people creeping. You know, it's a long way across this basin, creeping along the rocks way far away. And uh, we thought fine, they heard us yell and they yelled back and great and and we're gonna get on with life and head on down and get out of here. And uh, they kept yelling though. And it was hard to understand anything they were yelling but after a while we kinda got the impression maybe they wanted us to stop. So we continued down the trail to the basin, the bottom of the basin above which they are And one of the two figures stops, and the other one keeps slowly crawling down this rock slide and uh, finally gets down to us. It's a young man, say in his early 20s, I suppose, and he informs us that he and his wife, the other figure up on the rock slide, he and his wife have been lost for the last two days. They've had nothing to eat or drink all this day. It's the tail end Sunday evening. She is, they're both exhausted, she more so. And she's just sitting down to take a break. And to make this was the he shouldn't have told us this because this gave Rick just great ammunition. This was their honeymoon. And this guy was a little out of touch with reality. Uh, He had a really lightweight little tent, a little backpack, literally a bow and arrow, a kid's kind of bow and arrow. And again, I'm serious when I say he was not all in touch with reality. But they were Christians. And uh, they had been lost, and this was the end of Sunday afternoon, and they were expecting they were going to spend another very cold night with a blanket between the two of them and a flimsy little tent, no food and no water, when Rick, my unbelieving friend, lets out this yell. And they, they we wouldn't have seen them, and they wouldn't have seen us, apart from Rick, yelling. So... He goes up and helps his wife down. Literally, I'm serious, he carries her on his back the two or three miles down the trail to the truck. We carried the rest of their gear. And that night, they were at home fed and watered in their own beds when they thought they were going to spend another night lost in the wilderness. And as far as Rick and I were concerned, it was just this coincidence. It was just an accident that Rick lets out this hoop, you know, and they respond but in God's economy, clearly, this was no accident. It was no coincidence. This was a divine appointment, if you will, in which God was saying he's going to take care of his two kids here, and he used Rick, this, this uh, friendly unbeliever, uh, to, get, uh, to get the two of us together. So from God's perspective, it was a divine appointment. It was no accident. It was no coincidence. If you remember when we looked through the book of Ruth last year in, in chapter 3, Ruth and Naomi have come back. Moab wasn't a good place to live. Their fortunes had fallen, but they come back during the harvest. And in verse 13 of chapter 2 in Ruth, it says, Ruth just happened to enter the field of Boaz. Do you remember that? She just happened. It just, it just chanced. This is just the way it happened. When we talked about in God's economy, there are no accidents. It doesn't just happen. God's in charge of those. They're his divine appointments. To us, we don't see the dots being connected, but God does from his economy. He sees things, so there's no accidents. There are divine appointments from God, though. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. If you've got your Bible, uh, feel free. Turn to John 4. That's where we're going to hang out. John 4, and there's a lot of great stuff in John 4. Uh, There's some important theology, almost none of which we'll get to this morning. Uh, We'll go through about the first 15 verses. I'll read a few more, but uh, I want to make primarily one point, one point only from the interaction in John 4 this morning. Uh, John 4, 1, when therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, probably noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink,' for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food." The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And John here says, parenthetically, Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water." She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. I'm going to pop up to verse 28. So the woman left her water pot, went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. And going down to verse 39, And from that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now just to give the setting for this story, you remember Jesus has been down in the south, in Judah, in Judea, Jerusalem area. And so now he's going up to the north. And if you remember your geography, Judah in the south, the Jordan Valley, Samaria between them, and then Galilee up near the Sea of Galilee. The short route from Judea in the south to Galilee was straight up the mountains. And if you went that way, you went through Samaria. The long way would be to go over to the Jordan Valley, walk north up near the Sea of Galilee, and then cut back east. It was the long way around. If you were a Pharisee or if you were a religious Jew, oftentimes you would not go the short way because you wanted to avoid the Samaritans. So he'd go the long way. Jesus is taking the shortest route home, so he's going through Samaria. It's about noon, and let's just assume they've walked all morning, and it's a hot day. Maybe they haven't eaten. He's hot, he's tired, probably hungry, and thirsty. And he's sitting here at the well while his disciples go into town to get lunch and bring some back. The next thing as far as the setting goes is uh, who are the Samaritans and what problem do the Jews have with them? You can read about the Samaritans in 2 Kings chapter 17 from verse 22 on. I'll just summarize here for you, though. If you remember, after Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king, he loses the ten northern tribes. Jeroboam becomes king. And you have effectively two separate kingdoms, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Israel never had one good king. If you read the record, there's not one. And they go into idolatry almost immediately. Jeroboam sets up a temple and an idol, and he doesn't want his folks going down to Jerusalem because that limits his control. So they go into idolatry immediately. And in 722, God uses the Assyrians to come in and judge Israel. They defeat Israel, and they carry them off captive. And they settle them they scatter them around other lands so that this was typical in those days. If you scattered a people group, you minimize their ability to organize politically or militarily. And so that's what Assyria did. Now, when it displaced the Jews, they brought in Gentiles who'd been conquered from other nations, and they settled them in Israel. Now, God caused some problems for these folks when they came into Israel, and so they complained, and the king said, Fine, and he sent them a priest. A Jewish priest and he told them hey this is Yahweh over here and this is the way we worship him so this group these Gentiles from all over they came into this area we call Samaria Israel some Jews were left in the land and of course they intermarried and so what we developed was this portion in Israel in which there was this mixed group a mixed race Gentiles and Jews and not only were they mixed ethnically, but they were mixed spiritually. They worshipped the foreign gods they brought with them, and they worshipped Yahweh. So, for strict Jews in Jesus' day, this was a group totally to be avoided. They, they Literally, they despised them. If you remember even further back from Jesus' day, you remember when the Jews come back from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple? In Ezra 4, the Samaritans say, hey, we'll help. And they say, no way, no how. Because they didn't want contamination. They didn't want any association with a group that mixed worshiping Yahweh with worshiping other gods. You remember, Judah in the south went into captivity for the same reason. So they're saying, no way. In Jesus' day, when our story takes place, the Samaritans had their own temple. They did not worship in Jerusalem. They had their own temple They claimed Abraham because they did have Jewish roots, and they claimed Yahweh. They just didn't worship according to the rest of the ways God had told his people to. So the Jews avoided Samaria geographically when they could, and they certainly avoided Samaritans. So here's Jesus at the well in Samaria, and he initiates a conversation. And the person he's talking to is a despised, lowly Samaritan. And now she's a step lower than that because she's a woman. And you remember what the Jews, the Jewish rabbis used to say, Lord, thank God you didn't make me a woman. So she's got two strikes so far. She's a Samaritan and she's female. And not only this, but she has a woman with a past. She's been married five times and she's living with a guy now, which is in the text we didn't read this morning. We'll look at it later. So strike three and you're out. I mean, for most of us, this is not the gal we're going to hang out and initiate a conversation with. But this is the person Jesus is speaking to. This is John Ford. Do you remember who Jesus spoke with in John 3? We've got, not by accident, two back-to-back conversations here, don't we? In John 3, you remember Nick at night? Nicodemus comes to Jesus and talks to him at night. You remember the conversation he has? Who's Nicodemus? He's this important Jewish leader. He's a respected teacher in the nation of Israel. He's part of the Sanhedrin and to be any of these things he's probably materially wealthy, politically important. He is, he's at the top echelon of Jewish life. That's John 3. And here in John 4, Nicodemus is up here and in John 4 we've come down the scale far past neutral or ground zero to a Samaritan who's a woman who's immoral. We've gone from the top to the bottom, as it were, between John 3 and John 4. So, the conversations are occurring with people who are about as dissimilar as you can get, Nicodemus and this woman. Listen to the similarities, though, between the conversations. In John 3, if you remember, when Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, Nicodemus does not understand what he's being told. doesn't understand. In the conversation this woman will have with Jesus, she doesn't understand either. Jesus, in his conversation to Nicodemus, describes the Holy Spirit as a force of nature, the wind. To this woman in John 4, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as an element of nature, water, or living water. When Jesus speaks with Nicodemus, Nicodemus mistakes the use of the term born again. You remember he says, gosh, can I go back into my mom again? What are you saying, Jesus? Here in John 4, The woman at the well mistakes Jesus' use of the term living water. She says, okay, fine, give me the water, I won't have to come to the well again. Very dissimilar people, personalities, backgrounds, you name it, as dissimilar as we could have. But in the course of the conversation, they share more in common than they don't. In the way of sex... Social standing, religious and ethnic upbringing and background, much separated Nicodemus and this woman, but the conversations are remarkably similar because in the end, we're all made from the same cloth, we all have the same struggles, the same spiritual issues, and the same needs. It's not coincidence that these conversations are back-to-back here in John's Gospel. So all that is the background. Here's Jesus, hot, tired, and thirsty, sitting at a well... Here's this despised lowly Samaritan woman comes up and he initiates a conversation with her. And I believe he does so because unlike us most of the time, I think Jesus knows this is a divine appointment set by God the Father on Jesus' calendar and Jesus recognizes it when it comes up. And so he initiates a conversation. And that's all I'm drawing out of John 4 this morning. And I want to say three things about this. This was probably not a convenient time for Jesus to initiate a conversation. This was inconvenient. I mean, if he was choosing what he does, I'm hot, tired, thirsty, and here's this, frankly, a fairly dull-witted woman, and uh, do I really have to initiate a conversation kind of waste my time here? Uh, The first thing I think about this passage is if we want to keep, as it were, God's divine appointments for us, we have to be willing to be inconvenienced. We have to be willing to be inconvenienced. You know, there's graduations and weddings coming up. Everybody's getting the cards in the mail. And it's because there's this set time at which a certain thing is going to happen. And so we announce it beforehand. We plan for it. We announce it. We know it's coming. That's not what these divine appointments are like. God doesn't mail us something beforehand. Typically, the divine appointments are a knock at your front door, When you're cooking dinner. Or it's like the telephone ringing when the most exciting point of the movie or the ball game is on. They don't come when we want them to. They don't come at convenient times. God doesn't announce to us days before that they're coming. They just come. And they're there. And if you're like me, typically, I get upset. I turn and do the wrong thing. And then I say to myself, Lord, was that you knocking at the door? Lord, is that you ringing on the phone? Is this a divine appointment? Is this something that I want to write off that you don't want me to? Is this something I need to pay attention to? Is this someone I need to give my attention to? Uh, My wife, Kathy, if you've talked to her for any length, may have told you that this this lesson, this lesson alone, being willing to be inconvenienced was one of the most important, and I would say life-changing and freeing, Uh, crisis decisions she ever came to between she and the Lord, and it not only changed her life personally and dramatically, but it changed our family's life personally and dramatically, where she said she understood God was saying, I give myself permission to be inconvenienced. It transformed the way she looked at the girls needing something or someone else needing something, whatever. Being willing to be inconvenienced changed the way she looked at life. And it made her open to the possibility of God using her when before she just didn't want to hear it. And that's what we need to do, or that's the attitude we need to have. Lord, I'm willing to be inconvenienced. If I hear the knock, if the phone rings, so to speak, this could happen in a million and one ways, I'm willing to be inconvenienced. Jesus was hot, tired, thirsty, hungry. It wasn't a convenient time, but he took the time to talk to this Samaritan woman at the well. The next thing from this, uh, the next lesson I draw from this is to be open, to be open. And by this I mean be open to God wanting you to serve or help or take time for a kind of person you are not personally drawn to a kind of person or a person that you might be repulsed by for one reason or another. Now again, remember, this is a despised woman. This is a woman someone else, any other self-respecting Jew, wouldn't have given the time of day to, would not have spoken to. And I don't know who for, for each individual here, I don't know what that looks like for us, who are the untouchables in our lives. But this is she's an untouchable. But she was the person God wanted Jesus to speak to. We need to be open that God may want us to help or serve or speak to someone that we would not personally be drawn to or attracted to. Maybe not at all. You know, once in a while you may run into some old friend or some old acquaintance that's not a friend. And you might not want to see them or have them see you. But you need to ask yourself, Lord, is there something you have that I need to do or say to this person. Or sometimes you'll find yourself in conversation with someone. We should be asking ourselves, Lord, is there anything you want me to say to this person? You know, a lot of times there's not. I mean, I interact with lots of people every week and I'm always asking myself the question, Lord, do you want me to say anything particular? And sometimes he doesn't and that's okay. But we need to be open to the possibility Lord, do you want me to say something to this person? Do you need me to serve this person in some way? Whether I find them appealing or attractive or not. We need to be very, very careful about being too selective in whom we're willing to be put out for or whom we're willing to serve or to address or to speak to. John 3, Jesus speaks to the highest echelon of society, John 4, he speaks to the very lowest, and it's a great reminder that God is not impressed with the wealth or the prestige of the wealthy in this world, nor is he put off by the lack of wealth or standing or prestige of the lowliest of the world. This is something that we probably need to be reminded of semi-regularly our natural default position is to be drawn to or to honor those who have standing in the eyes of the world. This is stated throughout scripture, Old and New Testament. I'm going to read a couple of verses because I think this is important enough for us to focus on and to remember when we're dealing with others wondering if this is a divine appointment from God. Paul says in Romans 12, let love be without hypocrisy. You're not free to treat people differently because of their social standing. That's hypocrisy, Paul says. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind. You're not better than others, Paul says, but associate with the lowly. Christians are commanded to associate, to draw near, if you will, to the lowly. James gets up front, in your face, personal about this same issue, about writing off the social outcasts or those who are low scale socially in James 1 and 2. He says in James 1, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. He says, guys, in God's eyes, you may be lowly in the world's standings, but if you're in Christ, you're a child of the king. You're a brother, a sibling to Jesus. You have the exalted standing in Christ. Don't worry excuse me, about low standing. You're exalted in Christ. But then he goes on to say, let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he's going to pass away. What a great reminder. Lord, I have power, wealth, material possessions, but Lord, I remember that they're all dust. They're grass and they're not going to last and that my true treasure is in Christ. And then listen to what he says in two. He says, if a man comes into your assembly in your church with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and you say... Sit here in the good place. And you say to the poor man, You, stand over there, or sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him if you show partiality, you are committing sin. If you show partiality based on the status of another person, James says you are committing sin. The problem for us is, you remember the passage in Samuel, God looks, or excuse me, man looks on the outward appearance, and he's is either impressed or not impressed. Remember concerning a king? But Samuel said, but God looks on the heart. God is not impressed by the externals like we are. And we're typically impressed by those who have some kind of standing in this world. God says through James, when we make distinctions, and in this context based on whom we will serve and whom we will be put out for, when we make distinctions based on the standards of this world, God says we are in sin. We are loving hypocritically, Paul would say, because we're treating others differently based on what they have or don't have according to the standards of the world. This is something that Christians in the United States need to hear regularly. God makes no distinctions based on social standing, material wealth, etc. In fact, if he prefers one to the other, it says he chooses the lowly of this world. He says this repeatedly. 1 Corinthians, James, elsewhere. So don't be put off. Some of us are put off by the wealthy. We feel small or intimidated if someone has political clout or financial standing. We're not to be put off by either. Jesus wasn't. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, one to the other. No difference in Jesus' eyes. Both have the same needs, and we should see them the same also. The last thing is, the last point from this is you never know how God will use a divine appointment. Here's this lowly woman. Can you imagine her reputation even in her little village? How much standing did she have? I mean, she's gotta have none. Zilch. Five husbands? Living with another guy? Please, you know, she she's nobody in her own little town. So if I'm I'm out and I'm thinking about who should I talk to so that I can get maximum return for my energy, it would not be this woman. If I'm thinking strategically about spreading the gospel, I'm not thinking about going to her. But that's who Jesus speaks to in Samaria. And what happens? She leaves her water pot, she runs back to town, and she tells others. And what happens? They believe. They come out and meet Jesus for themselves. They say, would you stick around a couple more days? And he does. And what happens? They believe. Listen, these are Samaritans. These are people who don't worship in the right place. They don't dress the right way. They don't live in the right place. And it says, they say, we know this one is indeed the Savior of the world. You remember the point of John's Gospel is to show us that people believe in Jesus These lowly, despised Samaritans, they believed. And they believed initially on the testimony of this down-and-out, low-life woman. You never know where God's divine appointments will lead. You don't know how a thing will turn out. The most unlikely of people at times may be exactly the person God wants you and I to interact with. Because he knows how he's going to use them. We don't. We don't know how the dots connect, you know, or whatever. We don't know how God's orchestrating things behind the scene. Sometimes you and I look at someone and we think, boy, they'd make a great Christian or they'd make a great evangelist or whatever. And God says, just like when he looked at uh, Jesse's sons, he says, nope, they're not the ones. This youngest kid, this kid out tending sheep, he's the one I'm choosing. He's the one I'm going to use. Just like this woman, the lowly one, that's who God used. So we've got to be very careful about thinking sometimes. We're going to invest strategically. We're going to avoid low life. We're going to We're going to share with the people that are nice, that look like they'd make nice Christians. That's our tendency. We need to be very careful about alienating people that God may be wanting us to go and serve. Uh, last fall, I'm closing with this, last fall Kathy and I had an announcement in the mail ahead of time about a gallery opening in Lawrence at Signs of Life. And I was excited about going. Uh, it was local artists out of Lawrence, uh, new uh, new gallery exhibit that would be opening. There was going to be a reception and food and free, food and drink. Dan, I was there. I was all over that. And uh, so we were going to go, it was a Friday afternoon, I'd had two inspections, I came home, I was tired, I was beat, and I thought, I told Kathy, I don't want to go tonight. It doesn't sound fun anymore. And I was thinking about it, and I prayed about it, and my thought in going was, I'm going to go, it's going to be a fun time, I'll be encouraged and refreshed. And I was too tired to go, be encouraged and refreshed, but I felt like when I prayed, God was saying, Mike, maybe I want you to serve someone there. So I told Kathy, Hun, I think we've got to go, and I think God wants us to serve somebody there. So we went. And we hung out in the bookstore down on the first level before the reception began. And we were looking around, and lo and behold, we run into Hannah. Hannah Cowell, our surrogate daughter. And we didn't know she was going to be there, I think, although our daughters may have told her. So Hannah shows up. And school has just started. Hannah's away from home for the first time, and we figure this is it. God wanted us here to encourage Hannah. So we had a nice little chat with Hannah, sat down with her in the bookstore, and it was great. It was fun. The reception commenced, we went upstairs, we got our refreshments, met the artist, saw the artwork, it was all fun, it was great. Kathy and Hannah go down to the coffee bar, before I'm still upstairs, and they make an order, so they meet Josh, the server at the coffee bar, and they've struck up a conversation with Josh. And I come down and join them, and they introduce me to Josh, and we start a conversation. And out of this, Josh is a Christian, of course. And out of this conversation, Hannah, whom we had prayed for at her spring graduation, Lord, knit her in really quick. Get her with a Christian group on the university so she can learn and grow. She's not going to be kind of stranded out in the cold. Well, Josh invites Hannah to the Navigator meetings and then to the dead theologian society that meets at uh, Signs of Life also. Hannah gets pulled in that night right away through Josh, which was great. And then Josh introduces us to his fiancee, Carol. And now Josh and Carol and Kathy and I have probably met two, three, four times as they go through the ups and downs of life and we've been praying for them. And Josh's last uh, email was how thankful they were for our prayer. They've gone through some struggles with family related to marriage and one, one thing and another. Upcoming marriage. And We God did want us there to serve someone, and we thought it was just Hannah, and and Hannah turns into a link to Josh, and Josh and Carol, and God had more there for us than we knew. We thought we were going to go and just have a fun time, but God had it as a divine appointment. He did want us to encourage Hannah, but he did want us to meet Josh and Carol also, and so we never know where a thing is going to go. So, you know, we fill out our calendars and our daytimers and our planners, but God has his own. And sometimes those interruptions, they're not just interruptions, they're His divine appointments. And we've got to remember to be willing to be inconvenienced. Lord, is that you? Be willing to be inconvenienced. Don't be too choosy, too selective in whom God is asking us to serve, associate with the lowly or with the wealthy. And you never know how these appointments are going to work out. God takes things from one point to another. We never know how those things are going to work out. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck again by how frail and futile we are on our own and how majestic and glorious you are and that, Lord, you see the end from the beginning. Nothing escapes your notice and no purpose of yours is thwarted. Lord, help us to be your willing servant so that whether we're tired and hungry and thirsty like your son was at the well or whether we're fat and happy, Lord, well-fed, whether we're meeting, Lord, with the wealthy and powerful or whether we're face-to-face with the destitute, the lowly, the despised, help us to see, folks, as you do, as Jesus did, as people in need of a Savior. Lord, thanks that you were willing to save the Samaritans. They recognized in you the Savior of the world. Thanks that you used a lowly, despised woman. Lord, if you used her, you can use us too. And help us just to have an ear open to what you might want to be speaking to us and an eye open to whom you might want us to be serving. Lord, thanks in your economy. There are divine appointments. We don't know about them ahead of time. Help us to be open to seeing them, recognizing them, Lord, when they come, when you call. In Jesus' name, amen.